In this episode of CMO, I take you behind the scenes of my last night float for 2023. And in this night float, just like the previous ones, it was filled with plenty of code blues and crashing patience. But in this scenario, and in this episode, I describe a scenario where a patient was slowly crashing. And it took some time to decide which way they were going to declare themselves. Were they going to turn a corner and get better? Or were they going to crash and burn? And sometimes one of the hardest things to do is just sit on your hands and watch it play out. But in this episode, I take you behind my decision-making process in this situation and how it ultimately played out and what my, and what my big takeaways were from that moment. So sit back and enjoy the episode. And welcome to CMO. Welcome to Collecting My Observations. Enter into the stream of thoughts that flow through the mind of an ICU fellow who is on his way to becoming an anesthesiologist and intensivist. This is where patients live on the verge of life and death. So over the Thanksgiving holidays, my wife and my mom were both talking about individual podcasts that they were listening to. And in each of their podcasts, the author or the speaker of the podcast talked about how humans make 35,000 decisions on an everyday basis. Now, these are pretty simple decisions that we sort of take for granted and do robotically throughout our day. For example, when you woke up this morning, you decided to either go to the bathroom first or brush your teeth first. You decided how much to turn your shower knob to make the water hot. You also decided to take out your cell phone this morning, pull up the podcast, and start listening to my voice. Now, that's just an example of simple decisions that we make on an everyday basis. Now, transition yourself into an ICU where you're taking care of around a dozen patients who are all critically ill and have multiple organ systems that are failing on you. Imagine how many times folded those decisions that you're making are. You could probably roughly estimate that you can multiply 35,000 by at least 10 times, and that's how many decisions you're making in the ICU on a regular basis. Now, when it comes to nighttime coverage, we are covering four different ICUs, one in the cardiac, one in the neuro ICU, one is a surgical ICU, and the other is a trauma ICU. And there are primary teams for all of those ICUs, but as a nighttime intensivist coverage, we're sort of supervising and swooping in when things are going awry. Over Thanksgiving break, my younger sister also asked me, who's a brand new nurse, if it was normal for residents who work at nighttime not to know their patients inside and out. And I kind of chuckled at this because obviously she's saying this comment from a situation where I'm sure there is a resident who she asked a question to and they had no idea what was going on with that patient. But I explained to her that it is pretty reasonable for residents not to know the patient as well as nurses. And that mainly stems from at nighttime, you're not involved during the daytime rounds, so you really aren't involved in that conversation and decision-making process to really know why the decisions are being made for each individual patient. And a lot of the times, the variation in treatment plans has to do with the nuances of their medical history. Not only that, but very infrequently, unless your patient is unstable, are you going to their bedside and doing physical exams in the middle of the night. Whereas during the daytime, when you're rounding on patients, you see every patient after you're done rounding on them and you do a physical exam, and that physical exam in that moment where you get to see them and potentially even talk to them in person 
sticks around in your memory bank much more than just knowing who they are on the computer system. Now, when I'm covering nights, usually residents will reach out to me when patients are not doing that well. There's also situations where we get new patients overnight, whether they're getting admitted through the emergency department or they're coming to us postoperatively. And we, as a night team, have to come up with a treatment plan to get them through the night and then allow the daytime team to sort of take over the trajectory of where they're going. In this episode, I'm going to take you through a scenario where we received a postoperative patient who needed close ICU watch. And the reason that we were told she needed an ICU admission was because a previous surgery that she had had, she had required postoperative intubation for some sort of respiratory failure. That was pretty much the extent of the history that we got from her. But anytime there is a concern that someone's respiratory status is going to fail and they may potentially need intubation, ideally the best place for them to be is in the ICU where resources are close by. For example, our ventilators are just across the hall. Respiratory therapists are constantly walking around since there's other ventilated patients in the unit. We have an airway box with all the airway equipment in it. And nurses and residents are just much more used to quickly acting and doing frequent physical exam and physical checks throughout the nighttime, especially in unstable patients. So it seemed pretty reasonable to have a submission given that history for her. So when the patient arrived, I walked into the room to quickly see the patient for myself, knowing that this may be the best shot that I had to do an airway exam. When I got in the room, the first thing I noticed was this patient was wearing a C-collar or a cervical collar around their neck. The surgery that they had had was a posterior craniectomy where they fused the back of her skull to her C3 spine. So there's really no neck mobility for this patient. So that already was going to make this a tricky intubation if we were going to intubate this patient. Second thing I noticed was her mental status wasn't all that great. She was very agitated and was complaining of pain quite a bit. So the first thing we needed to do was make sure we had her pain under control. Obviously, everyone was very hesitant to give her opiates and suppress her respiratory drive given the history we already had, but I felt like it was prudent to give her some sort of narcotics like Dilaudid to help her pain because the way she was right now was not a safe situation either. So we get her settled, we give her some pain medicine, and I go check on the other units. A couple hours later, her labs start to come back, and the resident notes that the blood gas shows an elevated carbon dioxide level. So what you're looking at on an arterial blood gas is the pH of the blood, the partial pressures of both oxygen and carbon dioxide in the blood, the bicarbonate level, as well as a base excess. And what the carbon dioxide level can tell you is how well the patient is ventilating. And the fact that her levels were starting to climb, that meant she wasn't ventilating as appropriately as she could. Now, oftentimes when someone accumulates carbon dioxide, this can be a sign that there's some impending respiratory failure going on. So I swing by the bedside to see how she's doing. And she's still pretty agitated. And I can tell she's having intermittent episodes where she'll fall asleep, go apneic, and then wake up and become agitated again. So the decision was made to start her on a Presidex strip to keep her calm and hopefully get her some sleep at nighttime, as well as apply some BiPAP to help her breathe at night. So we try that plan, and a couple hours later we get another gas, and her carbon dioxide continues to go up. So I come by at the bedside again, and the first thing I notice is that the BiPAP mask is leaking 
around the sides of the patient's mouth. And I noticed that the respiratory therapist keeps going up and up on his inspiratory pressure to try and get the tidal volumes to a more appropriate place for this patient. Now at this point, the respiratory therapist is concerned that we're not going in a good direction. The nurse who's taking care of the patient is also concerned that we aren't going in the right direction. And the resident who is on the junior side isn't quite sure what to do next. So what I suggest that we did, and it was sort of my suggestion from the very beginning, but unfortunately this patient came at shift change and this plan sort of got left behind and wasn't communicated very well. And unfortunately I wasn't able to stick around the unit to really make sure it happened. But what I wanted to do from the very beginning was put this patient on high flow nasal cannula and see if that was going to be more easier for her to tolerate versus a BiPAP, as well as provide a lot more flow and more oxygenation for her to breathe better. Now, there's sort of a polarizing argument whether or not high flow nasal cannula provides some sort of positive pressure, but you can't deny the fact that we are giving oxygen at very high flows, which allows you to oxygenate better. But I was hopeful that if we could at least get her in a more comfortable situation and take off the BiPAP, we could safely say that she was going to breathe better on her own. So my plan was to trial this and see how she did in the next couple hours, and hopefully this was all she was going to need. So we did that plan. A couple hours later, we have another gas, and the gas comes back with basically a plateaued carbon dioxide level. So when she was on the BiPAP, her carbon dioxide level had actually gotten worse. It had creeped up to like the 60s from the 50s prior. And then once we switched to the high flow nasal cannula, it pretty much parked itself right around the 60 range. So I come back to the bedside and the nurse and the respiratory therapist are still quite concerned that this was not going to be a sustainable situation for the patient. Their concern was that the patient was looking pretty sedated and that was a result of the hypercarbia. They were also saying that occasionally it looks like she goes apneic, but then she sort of spontaneously wakes up and is doing okay. Now when I got to the bedside, there was really no signs of any sort of respiratory distress, and it looked like she was actually resting quite comfortably, but I could agree with them that there could be some concern that she was having episodes of apnea. Now at this point, I was in a situation where I wasn't rushing to intubate her. I actually felt like the clinical scenario was in a pretty reasonable place compared to where we were prior, but I was in a situation where I felt like a few of the team members had a disagreement with me or didn't feel like we're in a safe situation. And not having all the confidence in the world, which I think is probably a little bit appropriate at this time, being halfway through my fellowship, I called in some backup and paged my attending to come to the bedside and take a look at this patient. So when he came to the bedside, he pretty much came up with the same assessment that I had, which was this patient obviously has a high carbon dioxide level, um, but there's a chance that she may live at that level and we just don't know it. For example, if she had bad COPD and was just somebody who retained carbon dioxide on a regular basis. But given the fact that she wasn't in respiratory distress, it was really hard pressed for us to say like we needed to intubate her right away. There's a couple things that this attending did in at the bedside that I think really made this conversation flow very well. And I think led me to realize that I could have improved my communication skills in this situation as well. 
because what he ultimately did was articulate everything I was thinking in my brain, but was much better at communicating it to the team members in the room. So what he explained was, if we reintubate this patient, how are we going to explain why she failed the first extubation? That's something you always want to keep in the back of your mind because ultimately what we're suggesting by reintubating her is that she failed that extubation for some reason. And the reason you want to keep this in mind is because the next time the day team goes to extubate her, they're going to want to figure out, okay, how do we make sure that this patient is successfully extubated this time around? And when we went through the differential diagnosis for why we think she was failing extubation, it came down to a lot of acute things that we could change that night and see how it played out for her. For example, the biggest concern at that moment was that she was over-sedated. Now there's two things, maybe three things contributing to that. One was the narcotics, which you can make the argument that maybe we should reverse her with Narcan and just wake her up that way. The downside of that is we would reintroduce all the pain that she had prior and it would probably cause a very agitated state for her. Or we can just let time elapse and let her body metabolize those narcotics and eventually those will wear off. The other thing that could be contributing to her somnolence is a Presidex infusion. So the very next thing that we did was just shut that off and eliminated that as a potential reason for why she was being oversedated. And the third thing that could be contributing to the situation is her hypercarbia. So we agreed that we would follow her blood gases and make sure she wasn't accumulating carbon dioxide. Now, this isn't the only way you can assess someone's ventilatory status. If it was during the daytime, what I likely would have done is just followed her clinical exam and seen how awake or sedated she was. But given the fact it was the middle of the night and I was preferred that she just slept peacefully, I figured we could just follow the blood gases, especially since she had an arterial line already. So explaining his rationale in that sense was, I think, very effective and very helpful for everyone who was involved in this decision-making process. The second thing he did was he opened it up to people in the room to express how they were feeling and if they had any qualms with this plan. Now this part always gets tricky because I think inherently there's always a power difference between an attending and some of the other ICU players involved in the team. Now this nurse was a relatively young nurse and the respiratory therapist I believe was a traveler because I hadn't seen them before. But when the attending asked if they had any concerns or any problems with the plan, neither of them spoke up at that time. Now whether that was because of this power difference or because he did such a great job explaining his rationale, I'm not really sure. However, I was able to say at the end of that conversation, look, I know you guys had concerns before and although you're not saying them right now, I just want us all to be on the same page that we all agree that the last thing that we want to do is get into a situation where we're emergently intubating this patient at four in the morning. None of us want to get ourselves into that situation, but we also don't want to do something unnecessary that we don't think is warranted in the situation. Of course, the easiest thing to do would be intubate this patient and not have to worry about it until the morning time, where it wouldn't even really be our responsibility to figure out all of these decision-making process that I'm covering right now. And honestly, it would have made for a much more restful night for me because by not intubating this patient, I was basically hanging out by this ICU the entire night, 
ready to emergently intubate this patient if she tipped over the edge. But when you have patients who are slowly decompensating and you aren't quite sure which way they're going to declare themselves, whether they're going to turn a corner and get better or continue down a bad trajectory where they need emergent intervention, you sort of have to use a gut feeling. And I think this gut feeling comes from your clinical assessment, which takes a little bit of intuition, but I think the other half of your clinical judgment comes from a level of experience. Now, knowing that my attending had years and years, maybe even a decade of experience on me, was reassuring that they were going to be helpful to come up with the right solution in the situation. And it was reassuring to me that they came up with the same conclusion that I had come up with based on my physical assessment of the situation. So over time, I think I will eventually gain that confidence and gain the experience to say, you know, I'm comfortable making this decision and we're going to try this plan before we jump to any intervention. Now, the flip side of that is understanding that in medicine, and especially in the ICU, things can change very quickly. So just because that patient looked very good at 2 in the morning doesn't mean that at 2.30 or 3 o'clock they weren't going to decompensate quickly. So having the ability to have humility and be able to accept the fact that you may have been wrong in that situation and you need to change your treatment plan is very important as an intensivist. And I, that night I was ready to swallow my pride at any moment and intubate this patient if need be. But just because we can do something doesn't mean we have to do it. And that's really one of the biggest lessons to take away from the story. Not only that, but I want you to take away the fact that the ICU is very much a multidisciplinary team effort. And the nurses and the respiratory therapist and the physical therapist and a lot of these consulting teams are the ones who really spend a lot of time with the patients, particularly nursing, and they really get to know patients really well. So when they express concerns to you, they often are warranted and they have good reasons for why they're expressing concerns to you because they see so much more of the patient's hospitalization than we as physicians ever see. For example, that night when I was coming by the bedside to see the patient, I was getting very small snippets of what was going on in their clinical status. I was basically only seeing five minutes out of a two-hour period of time. So I have to trust that the stories and the assessments that the nurses and the resident and the respiratory therapist are giving me are true in their nature, but ultimately it's our decision as a physician to decide what steps to take next. Having all of your team members on the same page and being able to clearly explain why you're doing what you're doing is so important in this interdynamic, interdisciplinary dynamic team setting that we have in the ICU. If ever you're in a situation where you're doing a treatment plan where your nurses don't agree with you or your respiratory therapist doesn't agree with you, one, not only does it make it very uncomfortable and potentially creates conflict amongst your team, but two, you're going to set yourself up in a situation where you're providing suboptimal care for a patient. It creates confusion and mixed messages get sent, and that's when dangerous things can really happen. So as physicians, we have to be comfortable and we have to be confident to explain our rationale. And it has to be more than just a gut feeling, even if a gut feeling is driving our initial decision making. We have to be able to take the time to step back from a situation understand the consequences and the benefits of our decision making and be able to convey that to our team members.
because without these team members, whatever treatment plans we come up with aren't going to get executed. Now, this story highlights one of my favorite parts about knights. The role of a nocturnist or a nighttime intensivist is really to respond to these crashing situations for patients. And being able to think quickly on your feet and wake up from a nap and be able to jump into action is one of my favorite adrenaline rushes in this job. Over time, as I'm put through more and more of these situations and I build up that memory bank and experience of seeing different patients and how situations play out, I think the more confident and the more comfortable I'm gonna be handling these situations. And as much as I love nights, it sure is good to be back on the day side. We have reached the point in winter where the amount of daylight that comes to us is very short. So I'm enjoying my partial sunrises when I'm walking to work and the sunsets as I leave work. But for all of you guys who are out there who work night shifts, I applaud you because that stuff is not easy. And it's important that our patients get good care at all hours of the day. So thank you for all of you guys who work night shifts and you keep our patients safe when resources are skim and the hospital can seem emptier than it is during the daytime. So thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something from it. And remember these two things. If you're going to go against the grain, make sure you have a good rationale and a good explanation for why you're doing what you're doing and be able to communicate it. And never forget that being in the ICU is a team-based sport and you have to play nicely and play fairly with everybody. Otherwise, your team is not going to respect you and do what you need them to do. I'll catch you guys next time. If you like this episode of CMO, be sure to hit the subscribe button to the Behind the Drapes podcast, where you can hear more episodes just like this and have the new episodes downloaded to your homepage as they come out. If you want to check out some of the educational content that I put out, check out my social media page on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, and that's at Keywords by Kenny, at Keywords X Kenny, and that'll get you to these short videos that I put out about different educational topics related to anesthesia and the ICU.